0: You hey, Dave, how you doing, man? I'm doing great.
1: Really excited for today's interview. Uh, any paleo news uh, before we begin?
0: Oh man, I don't really have it. there has <laughs> been so much. I've been uh, it's summertime here, and and uh, you know there's uh, 1.5 million people that come through this town in the summer, and then I also have summer visitors, so it's great.
1: Hey, wait, you said it was 1 million. Now it's 1.5.
0: I think it's like 1.5 million. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's a town of Mm, 10,000, 13,000, but, uh, yeah, there's days.
1: Wait, How many people a day is that?
0: We can get upwards of, you know, 15,000 people, more people on the ships than in the town. So it's, it's an uphill battle.
1: I'm in Ojai, California, which is 10,000 people. And, uh, We get Los Angelinos who want to come up and experience the small town and, and, you know, homegrown markets on the weekends. But other than that, it's pretty quiet around here.
0: They don't come into your backyard, take pictures of the view or anything like that?
1: No, all my neighbors uh, own weapons.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) California. (laughs) I like that.
1: You know, it's funny. I remember seeing in Alaska a, a sign that said it wasn't just no trespassing. It was no trespassing violators will be shot on site no questions asked
0: that's kind of like the alaskan the pioneer spirit man you know yeah, yeah we <laughs> old, we old sourdoughs but yeah no it's been great but uh yeah i haven't really been able to track a whole lot of the science other than you know i mean there's so many discoveries all the time and you know it's great we have these scientists on and i get a lot of my science news from this podcast and yeah you know we get the inside scoop
1: researching our, our guest which will discuss in a second here well you know it's going to be steve Brusati. i went down the lystrosaurus rabbit hole what
0: yeah not a dinosaur dave
1: i know but they're kind of proto mammals and uh it was when i was researching the rise and reign of mammal book that he wrote
0: yeah we had a previous guest christian sedor who specialized in uh, yeah. uh these yeah. uh, um cynodonts and such right and yeah. uh When the world uh, went very, uh, very bad (laughs) at at the end of the Permian, what made it through? Uh, And it was the creatures like uh, Lystrosaurus and uh, our our kin there. So and the world was full of Lystrosauruses. It was their place for a while. And then
1: apparently they were
0: 95
1: percent of all terrestrial animals.
0: Wow. Just like us. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: no. If you count insects, I think insects uh beat us out by uh ten to one.
0: And actually birds do too, but yeah, I'll bring that up.
1: We will, we will. So tell us about our guest today. Very excited. he's a legend, isn't he? And
0: uh I've known of Steve's work. I've never met him, so this will be my first time meeting him here. I'm really excited to meet him. The the man is brilliant. He's a, he's a younger fella and uh he is making waves with his research and naming species. He teaches in Scotland, and yeah. uh, he's Edinburgh. from the Midwest.
1: Yeah, originally from Illinois. He has several New York Times bestseller list books.
0: Yes, and he's also been working on some of the Jurassic Park films, Jurassic World, I believe. Right, as, right. Well, as uh, an
1: advisor. Well, let's uh, get him on the uh, old-fashioned rotary dial phone and, and call across the pond. To the great city Edinburgh.
0: Okay, I want to talk to this guy? Hey, Dave. Meet Steve Rusati, paleontologist and evolutionary biologist, chair of paleontology and evolution at the School of Geosciences at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Hey, Steve. Edinburgh, good to see you, man. Did you say Edinburgh?
2: <laughs> I think so. You know, <laughs> I, won't, I I won't correct it. I'm 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 a so no, I'm an honorary Scot, but. It's I Edinburgh. still can't quite do Edinburgh. the accent. Edinburgh. 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 <laughs> but that's the most you'll hear me do in Scottish pronunciation. My, my little boy, he's a Scottish boy, so he's starting to oh, is have he? the accent. But yeah, I, yeah, I have a three-year-old here, and he's starting to say the words the way scottish people say them which is very interesting wow. this morning he was talking about you know, if we could oh, a hook.
1: well steve you're in edinburgh ray is in ketchikan alaska i'm in oh california at the top of the podcast i want to ask you are you a paleo nerd steve of course i am i wouldn't be doing the show
2: otherwise and i, I certainly wouldn't be a paleontologist at a a guy who writes about dinosaurs and mammals and other fossils. If I wasn't a paleo nerd I be I mean I became a paleo nerd when I was fourteen years old, when I was uh, just starting high school. And man, I went hard into being a paleo nerd. And I think that's probably if you had asked anybody back when I was in school back home and in Ottawa, Illinois, in Northern Illinois, they you know, would say, that Steve guy, man, what a dinosaur nerd! What a paleo.
0: <laughs> well, nerd. now of wait, but you say fourteen years old—that's kind of late in the paleo nerd uh, yeah. uh, time scale. There, what's what's with that? Did you not care about dinosaurs as a five-year-old?
2: I did not. I did not. I had no interest in dinosaurs and fossils. Cars and trucks or farming equipment? You know what? A little bit cars and trucks when I was quite young. But really, I mean, I was big and still am into sports, into following professional sports, playing sports. Uh, I was always big on history class in school, social studies, um, on on stories, on coming, creating stories, writing stories. Those were the classes I liked the best. Science was my least favorite class. And that's not to say I hated it. And it yeah, certainly yeah. is not because I had bad teachers. I had great science teachers growing up in Wallace grade school in Ottawa, Illinois, where I'm from. But I
0: just didn't connect. Steve, wasn't it kind of a sibling thing? Your big brother yeah. was into dinosaurs and he, he get, he's the one who kind of turned you?
2: That's what did it. And it was my my little brother, my littlest brother. I had two brothers, uh, Mike and Chris. And and, uh, Chris is four years younger than me. And he was a full-on paleo nerd to the extreme, starting when he was about four
0: years old or so. That's me. All right.
2: And so... All respect for you, Ray, for keeping it, you know, because most people, Chris included, they were into dinosaurs big time. I mean, obsessed. He turned his bedroom into a dinosaur museum. I don't know how many times he watched Jurassic Park out of loop. But, of course, you know, like most young kids, he... uh,
1: got other interests over time. How did it spark you at 14? I mean, suddenly, no. bam, You and this is what you do. Yeah. You're one of the most celebrated mm-hmm. paleontologists and authors uh, alive today.
2: well, thank you for that. I don't know if the last part's true, but it certainly is well, what I not do alive for my, today? my living. Oh, I'm alive, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, I, I think it hit, it's hard to explain. It's one of those things like you just find a spark with something like, you know, you you see somebody on the street and you immediately fall in love, that kind of thing. It just, it just happened. It came very quickly. And really it was because Chris asked for help on a science fair project he was doing on dinosaurs. And I think he just wanted to spend some time with his brother. And of course I was happy to oblige. So, you know, we just started to go through his books and he had a lots of dinosaur books and I was helping him pick out little pieces of information. And it was a project on dinosaur reproduction dinosaur eggs how you tell males and females like this is what a a nine-year-old 10-year-old kid was doing for the science fair (laughs) it was crazy but but so i sat down and i started helping him and so quickly i mean really probably within a the first hour or so of 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 doing that uh i just became enthralled and i guess in hindsight i just grew up for many years with chris and his dinosaurs and his dinosaur museum in his bedroom and so little by little over time like the you know the geological process of erosion just little by little by little by <laughs> little like it just wore me down and the mountain wore down and then one day i just uh it, it just really sparked me but when it did then i became a full-on paleo nerd and i knew quite quickly within a few months or so um i was a freshman in high school at the time uh, and within a few months i i knew this is something i want to see if i can somehow make a career out of i had no idea back then of course what it took to become a professional paleontologist. But uh, I did my best, studied a lot of science in high school, learned a lot about the field. Uh, I I really went hard uh, in terms of writing. Uh, I I started to subscribe and write for a lot of the amateur fan magazines of the time. Uh, This was before there were blogs, really, but there were some websites that published articles. There were a lot of online message boards. I became a big part of the online Dinosaur community when I was in high school, they were really my best friends in the world. You know, I had I had friends in high school, of course, real friends. But was this all
1: because of the seeding from Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park
2: was wasn't an, and is a big. What's the, what's the uh, time frame
1: with Jurassic Park coming out and you writing for dinosaur blogs?
2: Jurassic Park uh, came out well 30 years ago, 1993, and uh, I remember very well seeing the film in the cinema back home. In Illinois with my dad and with Chris and my brother, Mike. Yeah, I was nine years old when Jurassic Park came out. It did not make me want to be a paleontologist right Right. away. It certainly inspired Chris to become even more of a dinosaur obsessive. And that was really part of it for the next few years, Jurassic Park was something Chris was always watching, the the videotape. Of course, when the second one came out, we had to rush to see it in the cinema. He had all the toys, all the books. And so it was a part, a big part of making me a paleontologist, but kind of indirectly.
0: Well, you know, I'm just curious before we dive into your work, what happened to Chris and his love for paleontology?
2: I kind of stole his thing. You stole it?
0: that's a so little awkward.
2: I, a, yeah, I, I think I was not the best brother there in, in, in the oh. end. I, I kind of took him. But, you know, he was starting to grow out of it as he was getting a little bit oh. older. And, and we kind of flipped in the sense that I really loved history class in school before I became enthralled with paleontology. Uh, Chris flipped and he became really into history and that's what he studied in college and then he worked in the museum world for many years designing exhibits and designing context so he he did some science exhibitions so he blended those two things history and science and also uh public uh, communication skills that's probably really what he's best at now he he Works in copy editing, um, so he's uh, actually making some money. <laughs> so, okay. um, but he's he retains an interest in, in paleontology, he still looks at stuff online, he still has an idea what's going on in the field, and it's really sweet that he, uh, you know, is, is always very complimentary when we have something new coming out, some new dinosaur discovery. And it's really fun to see his reaction, uh, when, when we find something cool.
0: I love one of your quotes, too. I mean, just diving right into it, man, is that there we are in the golden age of dinosaur research and you are really leading the way man you are you've uh, had many great discoveries named many new species and there's like a species a week that's being named these days
2: yep that's that's right it is the golden age i would certainly not say i'm i'm leading the way i would say i'm more chronicling it <laughs> maybe okay. kind of the scribe that's writing the books and stuff i mean i play my role but there's so many paleontologists of my generation all around the world that are going out and looking for dinosaurs, finding new dinosaurs, studying dinosaurs with new techniques and new technologies. Uh, And really, in in large part, it's because of Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park inspired lots of people that are now in their 30s and 40s to make this into a career. And not just kids like me, not just little boys growing up in the middle of America, uh, but uh, kids all over the world. And I have colleagues and Yeah, China, Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, Mongolia, all kinds of places. And they're younger scientists. They'll tell you that uh, Jurassic Park sparked their yeah.
1: interest. And, yeah. with, with the new species a week, is there anything last week or a month ago that has <laughs> surprised you the last couple of years with so many species? yes. What has surprised you? There,
2: There is about 50 new species found every year. So on average, it's about one a week. About half of those are coming from China. And the China opening up to the world, training a lot of young scientists, building a lot of new museums, that's really catalyzed a lot of the the most important new dinosaur discoveries. But it is a golden age. I know it is a little cliched, maybe. It does sound like a bit of a sales pitch when I say that, but it's it's true. It's not just to sell books, it is true. It is the golden age. We are learning more about dinosaurs than ever before. We are finding more new dinosaurs than ever before. This pace of discovery of a new species a week has been happening since I was a PhD student. So it's been happening for over a decade. This is not some blip. This is a long-term trend of Right. growth in the field of paleontology and there is new stuff all the time
1: has there been any recent descriptions that have impressed you or maybe... yeah when does this podcast go out uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> probably in october
2: mid-october That's why, okay so i can tell you something that isn't published <laughs> that. yet but it's going to be published later this week And I know about it, not because I discovered it or one of my students or colleagues uh, did, but it's a a paper that's going to be published in Nature, so it's a big deal. Uh, It's a paper I reviewed. I was one of the peer reviewers. And when I got this uh, paper in my email to look at, I was astounded by it because uh, it's a new dinosaur, a new species of dinosaur. Uh, It's from China. They're calling it Fujian Venator or Fujian Venator, depending on your pronunciation. Uh, And it's a really well-preserved... Theropod dinosaur, very closely related to birds. It's from a new site in China. So, many of you listening probably know of the feathered dinosaurs from China and these lagerstatten, these sites of exceptional fossil preservation, where essentially volcanoes buried these entire ecosystems. So, you get thousands of dinosaurs covered in feathers. Pompeii like preservation. Pompeii, yes. And, you know, that the first discovery of those fossils in the mid 90s is really what proved once and for all that birds really did evolve from dinosaurs. Once people started finding feathers on dinosaurs, that sealed the deal. It proved, of course, that the velociraptors in Jurassic Park were way off base, too bad. The movie came out three years before the <laughs> feathered dinosaur fossils Yeah, but were they found. corrected
1: that in Dominion, the, the, the latest did. crappiest Jurassic Park. Oh, don't say that, I worked on hey, Dominion. I was a, a consultant. consultant. Hey. <laughs>
2: Sorry. You know, you're an artist. You know how it works. Yeah, yeah I know
1: how it works. <laughs> yeah. But the representation of Dinosauria in that was awesome yeah. and up to date. Well,
2: y- yeah, and 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 thank you, Maureen. But it's true that one of the things, in Do- and we can talk about Dominion more if you want, but but when I was brought on to the film, it's really because Colin Trevorrow, the director, read my book. He read The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, and uh, he was living in Britain, still is. Only a uh, like New, New, New York
1: Times bestseller I might <laughs> Well. <laughs> and in, in yeah. the U.K., yeah bought somebody but
2: he read the book and he said hey you know i'm passing through edinburgh you want to chat and we sat down and he told me right away he said uh this was back in the summer of 2018 he said i'm starting to write the next film i want there to be more dinosaurs better dinosaurs new dinosaurs and i want there to be feathers on some of the dinosaurs and so this was his vision from the start but uh, he enlisted me to help make those feather dinosaurs more realistic i am i am very proud of that i know the film is what it is right it's a
1: hollywood yeah so blockbuster hollywood blockbuster film. yeah but kudos to you dollars. it made over billion dollars kudos to you for I accurate representation well thank but you but what is this discovery wait hold on anyway so
2: we know now for about 25 years that there are feathered dinosaurs most of them come from china they come from just a few places this is a new site in china with beautifully preserved dinosaurs and it's from a slightly different age so it's from right at the end of the jurassic period oh. this is the same time that archaeopteryx the very right. first true bird we know of in the fossil right. record was flying around Europe. And what this new dinosaur is, is that it's not a bird. It's a very close relative of birds. It's somewhere in that dromaeosaur truidontid zone, although it has such a bird-like skeleton, it's hard to tell for sure. But what's peculiar about it is that it has really long legs. And that's something we haven't seen before from a very close relative of birds or any early birds. And the, and most, most, Most of them are small little things that probably lived in trees that were good climbers, good gliders. This thing had long legs. The reason that most birds, really many animals today have long legs, is either they're running fast on them or they're wading in in water with those legs. So regardless of what this was doing, uh, it shows that the very closest relatives of birds were much more ecologically diverse than we used to think. They weren't just these small little things clambering around the trees. Some of them were probably running around on the ground, some were probably even wading in the water. There was a great richness of close bird
0: relatives and ancestors. So long legs like a heron, perhaps or yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, like that. And it's hard to tell if those long legs were for waiting, were for running or for both. You know, it's 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 always hard to tell with fossils if a certain feature was linked to something.
1: I'm going to ask kind of a silly question. What is the first evidence of the first feather that, that we found?
2: The first feathers that were found on non-bird dinosaurs, okay, so like the ancestors, these were found in the mid-90s in China, in these Pompeii uh, preservational settings where these ecosystems were buried by these volcanoes, the feathers were locked in stone. They, these animals were buried so quickly. Or Cretaceous. Those are early Cretaceous, most of them. Uh, but there's some other ones that were found later that were uh, kind of mid to late Jurassic. And now there's this new site, which by the time people are listening to this podcast, this will be out in the world. When we're talking right now, right. this is still under embargo. And so people won't know about it for a few more days, but I'm sure it's going to make a big impact. I've already had journalists contacting me for quotes for the articles they're preparing for later this week. So I'm excited. I think probably my colleagues in China that have discovered this have found, you know, the first fossil of what will be a whole bounty of very important dinosaur fossils at this site.
0: I just wanted to read that my favorite quote from you, from your book. I just was circled it. And I was reading it again last night, but you say the realization that birds are dinosaurs is probably the single most important fact ever discovered by dinosaur paleontologists. I mean, that's just putting it out there, but I have a, a few friends who are still some of the holdouts, like, you know, birds know they branch off from before the dinosaurs. They're still holdouts. Like, And there are the bird people. You
1: said it, Ray, a few friends. A
0: few, but one (laughs) of their arguments...
2: What kind of company do you keep, Ray?
0: (laughs) One of of their arguments, though, Steve, is that Archaeopteryx is from the Jurassic. Middle Jurassic, more or less? Late Jurassic. Late Late Jurassic. Jurassic. All right, Mm -hmm. so feathers are already there, but then all these great feathered dinosaurs are coming out from the Cretaceous, and there was a time difference here. Like Feathers show up, we get all these Cretaceous things, but now you're saying... You've got another site in China. These guys do yeah. that you, on this paper. That's in the Late Jurassic, and it yep. shows great diversity at the time of Archaeopteryx.
2: Yes, and that's an important part of this this new discovery. Okay. So I will say to to your uh, friends here, this was an issue in the 90s and into the 2000s. There was this what was called the temporal paradox. Yes, this you know Archaeopteryx was there in the Late Jurassic. It was known as a fossil. It was a Bird, Okay, it had big wings. It could fly with those wings by flapping those wings. Maybe it wasn't the world's best flyer, but it was a proper bird. Then the best fossils of the ancestors of birds, the raptors, the Dromaeosaurs, the Trudonids that had feathers, came from early Cretaceous rocks in China. So they come from after Archaeologists. So if you read the fossil record literally, you would have said, well, the ancestors can't be there after the birds were already there. Now, the issue with that is the fossil record is so fickle and so biased that we get such limited little windows into things that really we were just probably sampling these ancestors of birds long after birds were there. It'd be like uh, finding fossils of the monkeys and orangutans and stuff you know long after the first human is there in the fossil record these things weren't the direct ancestors they were cousins and just by the, the right, fickle right. nature of preservation you're only getting them later however this new site in china it is from the same age as archaeopteryx but there were these other mm. sites in china that started to be discovered and explored about 12-ish years ago that were from the a middle late jurassic boundary they're older than Archaeopteryx. so the discovery of these other sites in china which yield dinosaurs like ankyornis for instance that have feathers they put to bed this whole temporal paradox and they did show that yes indeed we just had a poor fossil record we just by chance were sampling some of these close relatives of birds that persisted into the cretaceous because that's when the volcanoes erupted to preserve them then once scientists found some of these volcano sites from the Jurassic. Lo and behold, the bird ancestors
1: were there, as predicted.
0: Wow, wow, cool.
1: What is a protofeather? What is the first protofeather? The first feathers
2: uh, were very, very simple, and they looked like hair. They were just little strands. Now, what we know from these various sites in China is that a lot of dinosaurs had feathers. Feathers were a normal thing for dinosaurs. And what I mean by that is you have these ecosystems that are buried by volcanoes. It's like a freeze frame. And they lock in the soft tissues. Normally, the soft tissues, the feathers, the skin, the muscles, it decays away. You just don't know the organic stuff. But here it's locked in stone. And when you get that, when you get that freeze frame, you actually see that a whole lot of dinosaurs have feathers. There's meat-eating dinosaurs with feathers in those ecosystems. There's plant-eating dinosaurs with feathers. There's lots of small dinosaurs with feathers, but there's even a tyrannosaur that was like 30 feet long and weighed over a ton, this thing called U-tyranus, e. that was yeah. covered in feathers. If you map this on the family tree of dinosaurs, which species have feathers, the inescapable conclusion is that the common ancestor of all dinosaurs must have had feathers and now there's even evidence from some pterosaurs which are like the next group out from dinosaurs the closest cousins that they had feathers too because scientists find these little strands of soft tissue yeah now their wings weren't made out of feathers their wings were made out of skin okay right but they had little strands of hairy
0: stuff on their bodies Right. And so, oh, of knowledge. Yeah, but, uh, so
2: feathers uh-huh. probably evolved even before dinosaurs, but most dinosaurs and pterosaurs, the feathers they had were not like the feathers of birds today. They were simple feathers. They were precursors. They were these little hairy things.
1: They weren't quills. They were more like
2: filaments. They were, they were fuzz, a filament. Yeah, just fuzzy stuff, little strands, little hair. Most dinosaurs kept feathers like that. But some later dinosaurs, the raptor dinosaurs in particular, modified, elaborated those little strands of hair, turned turned those little strands into a brush and those brushes into quill pens. And that's when flying started. So the main take home really is that feathers are a normal thing for dinosaurs. They go way back in dinosaur history, but those dinosaurs, most dinosaurs that had feathers could not fly with those feathers any more than we can fly with our hair. I guess the three of us don't have too much left, but you know, any human. So feathers must've evolved for another reason, not for flying.
1: What is that? Is that for insulation?
2: Probably, yeah, probably for the same reason mammals evolved hair: thermoregulation, to help control and regulate body temperature. Both mammals and birds today are warm-blooded. They had to become warm-blooded over evolutionary time. And having insulation is really key to controlling your body temperature to that fine degree. So that's probably why feathers evolved. Then later on, some of those feathers were modified into airfoils. And right. that's when dinosaurs started to fly.
0: I was reading a, a little bit about this too in your book uh, that maybe and some of your lectures that display was maybe what led to flight.
2: Yes. Yes. Trying to look and good that, for
0: the opposite sex, right? That's
2: right. right. Try, trying to look smart and suave. <laughs> trying to look a little yeah, sexy, Yeah, but everybody whatever.
1: says that if, if you can't figure out an adaptation, well, it's probably a sexual display. Yes.
2: I mean, that is true. It is very hard to test this to prove it. But here's what we know, okay? So, so this is the idea. The idea is that how do you take simple little hairy strands, the ancestral feathers, and right. turn them into something like a wing? We have fossils that show how wings started to develop in dinosaurs. And the reality is that the first dinosaurs that had wings were about the size of horses. And those wings were about the size of a laptop screen. So they were not flying. You mean the ornithomimids? Yeah, ornithomimids. And then even later, some, some raptors. Yeah, so, so there's no way they were flying with those wings. They must have been doing something else. Now, maybe they evolved from an ancestor that was a flyer and they lost flight. That is a possibility. It's hard to totally rule that out. But the other possibility, I think the much stronger theory is that wings evolved for something other than flight. And why not, right? I mean, birds today, of course, use their wings for flying, but they use them for a lot of other stuff too. They use them to keep their eggs warm in the nest. They use them for display. Some birds use their wings to swim. So there's no reason that birds had to evolve their wings for flying and the fossil evidence is telling us they probably did not. Now, the other line of evidence we have is we can tell the color of fossil feathers by looking at them under very powerful microscopes, identifying the melanosomes, these little bubbles basically that held the pigment that gave the feathers their colors. And you can tell by the size and shape of those melanosomes, whether they had black or brown or white or ginger, whatever colors. And so we see that a lot of these dinosaurs with small wings early on had very flamboyant colors and patterns to their feathers. And that at least is consistent with the idea they were using them for display. So I tend to think that most of the evidence indicates that wings evolved as something like an advertising billboard sticking out of the arms of some of these- A dinosaurs. flight
1: evolved convergently
2: though. Yes, if just imagine with evolution, you know, if you, if you, you have these ancestral hairy little structures that you, your deep ancestors evolved to control their body temperature. Now you're starting to elaborate them into this advertising billboard on your arm. Meanwhile, these dinosaurs, these raptor dinosaurs, they were getting smaller and smaller. And so at some point, that advertising billboard would be big enough, the body would be small enough that just by the laws of physics, if they moved it around a bit, it would provide a little bit of lift, a little bit of thrust, and those dinosaurs could start playing around in the air. And evolution didn't force them that way. Evolution doesn't see into the future. Natural selection doesn't plan ahead. It just so happened that these little dinosaurs developed these these, uh, airfoils out of their advertising billboards.
0: I love the idea. There's a light bulb over Ray's There's head. There's a light bulb going <laughs> off in my head here, and I love, I love this, Steve. The advertising billboard, this little sort of fan dance that was going on, like check me out, and then suddenly in this dance you're able to take, flap yeah. a little bit. That's a really interesting new yeah. twist on things. Like, I know. Yeah. Check this out. And you know what? Oh, I mean, what we you? we can't we can't really
2: prove that that happened necessarily. Yeah. That's very plausible. That something like that. Happen, And really, I think the main point is that, you know, evolution doesn't have a direction. It just works in the moment. Natural selection works in the moment to fit organisms to their environment. The same way you think about airplanes. You know, the Wright brothers invented the airplane, but they didn't invent the components. Other people did. You know, somebody else invented the wheel. Somebody else invented the propeller. Those people that invented those things would have had no idea that one day the Wright brothers would put them together in a way that would work as a flying machine, and I think that's the analogy to think about with evolution. So in this sense, flight, it evolved by accident. Really, a lot of things evolved by accident because there's no grand plan, but something as profound as flight, this major change in the behavior and the the locomotion and the lifestyle of these dinosaurs, it arose really as a byproduct of other things that were happening, feathers evolving for thermoregulation, wings evolving for display. Flight was like this unintended, Byproduct consequence of this. And I think that's really neat to see it that way.
0: So you have a real problem with uh, seagulls there in Edinburgh, Uh, right?
1: Yeah, I write about them (laughs) in the rise of all the dinosaurs. Well, the seagulls in Edinburgh are the largest I've ever seen in the world. They are giant. They're the size of small dogs,
2: Ray. When you were performing here in the fringe, I'm sure these little bastards have been able to see that. Um, They're massive. They're going after you. I mean, they are. I don't know what it is. You know, we're a seaside town. Uh, we got a lot of fish and chips places, uh, and uh, that's their preferred diet, that garbage. I'm sitting here at home in my little office, and uh, I'm actually sitting right by the window. I was was looking out the window here as I was writing The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, this chapter about the origin of birds, and I was watching seagulls and pigeons and and. Yeah and uh, magpies and crows out of the window and I tell a little story at the start of that chapter about how I'm watching a dinosaur at my window and that's true and yeah. this window I know that if you're listening you can't see it but David Ray can see the light coming in from this window I was watching these birds and it you know <sighs> that whether that's a good passage or not in the book I don't know but those seagulls they were my muse for that moment in time it's the only time I've ever liked a seagull
0: to get back to your quote, you know, I mean, really, the realization that birds are dinosaurs, and I always repeat that. I know it's still news to a lot of people, but it makes you look at the world and at birds in different ways. It really connects you to deep time. And uh
1: but it connects us, us to it. dinosaurs. It's, it's, yes, it's, it that does. Just blows me away. Yes, it does.
0: I like to point out that they actually outnumber us, you know. Yes.
1: Yeah. I know, and I've I've
2: written, I've written about mammals. So my follow-up book uh, was The Rise and Rain of the Mammals that came out last year, and I had to learn a lot about mammals to write it. Um, and I loved it, I loved writing it. And one of the, the factoids, which I did know going into it, but I never thought about it that much, was there are more than double the number of bird species than mammal species in today's world. And birds are dinosaurs, and therefore there are more than double the number of dinosaurs I know. today yeah. than there are mammals, which is a wild stat.
0: Another favorite quote of mine of yours is that the mammals kept the dinosaurs big. What does that mean?
2: (laughs) So when I was uh, writing The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, One of the things that I wanted to talk about in the book was the relationship between dinosaurs and mammals, because I think there is this misconception that the dinosaurs ruled the world, then they died, then the mammals evolved to take their place, and certainly mammals did take the place of a lot of the dinosaurs that died. A lot of those ecological well, They filled the,
1: the ecosystems and the niches.
2: Absolutely. You know, the top predator and top plant eater niches, the things that, you know, T-Rexes and Triceratopses and duck-billed dinosaurs filled, those niches, mammals did end up filling those. And it is true. Mammals greatly diversified after the asteroid hit. The number of mammal species exploded. Mammals got much bigger after the asteroid hit. But they didn't evolve to replace the dinosaurs. The mammals were already there. They survived the asteroid and therefore were able to replace the dinosaurs. And so really the dinosaur story and the mammal story, the same origin, the same origin story of these two great groups. The very first dinosaurs, the very first mammals were both originating and starting to evolve back in the Triassic period, about 230-ish million years ago on the supercontinent of Pangaea. And they went their separate ways. They had different fates. You know, Dinosaurs were destined for grandeur and some of them became bigger than Boeing 737 airplanes and all the hyperbole we want to throw in the direction of dinosaurs. Mammals stayed small. They stayed in the shadows. And for about 150 million years, dinosaurs and mammals coexisted. And there was something of an evolutionary equilibrium. The dinosaurs were the bigger ones The mammals were the smaller ones. And for those 150 million years, there were lots of mammals, but they never got bigger than a house cat, as far as we know. But they were very diverse mammals. And we often don't give them credit for all the amazing things they were doing and evolving and adapting towards when they were living with dinosaurs. There were mammals then that were fast runners. There were mammals that were burrowers, mammals that could climb trees, mammals that could swim, even gliding mammals all living underfoot and overhead of dinosaurs.
1: Are you talking about like the Cynodonts in the Triassic or? The things that evolved from them. So the Cynodonts,
2: which survived the great extinction. They're mammal-like. They were mammal-like. They were like the immediate ancestors. And a lot of them, if you saw them alive, you would have probably considered them mammals. They probably had quite a lot of hair and whiskers. They would have had molar teeth and so on, but they're not quite true mammals. They don't have quite the same teeth and the same jaws that define true mammals. But so, anyway, during the Triassic and then especially the Jurassic and the Cretaceous, you had dinosaurs and mammals living together. The dinosaurs were big, the mammals were small. The mammals were so good at being small, they controlled those small niches,
0: right. the yeah.
2: undergrowth. The understory, the underbelly of the Mesozoic world, the seedy underbelly of the Mesozoic, they were there in the dirt and the grime, and they were there in the night and the darkness. And they were so good mammals at being small that they kept dinosaurs from moving into those niches. You never saw a T-Rex the size of a mouse or a Triceratops the size of a rat. And that's because the mammals were really good at being small. And we know dinosaurs can do it. Look at a hummingbird. Dinosaurs are able to become small if there's the opportunity, oh, but they didn't have it because our ancestors were holding back the dinosaurs. And I think that's a really neat way to think of our deep history.
0: That that kind of flips it. I really love that that perspective on it, Steve. Let me ask you this just real quick. Are there primates in the Cretaceous?
2: That's a big point of debate, and that's a loaded question. What we do know is this. Uh, We do know that the very, there have been fossils of things that have been classified as primates or proto-primates that have been identified from the Cretaceous, but a lot of those probably are actually fossils from the Paleocene, the next interval that were just washed together with Cretaceous fossils. The first, like unequivocal fossils of proto primates, they're these things called uh, Purgatorius, and they're known <laughs> from about. Great name, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're known. Um, they, they explode in diversity in Western North America. They become very abundant Man, in the fossil record, age. beginning about one hundred thousand years after the asteroid. Okay. And then you start to find other species of proto primates across North America, and then across the world. Now, there is one twist to this, though. The fossil record, remember, is is imperfect. The oldest fossil you find of something is surely not going to be the actual oldest member of the group. There could be older stuff that just wasn't preserved. You can predict when certain modern day groups or species originated by something called the molecular clock. This is looking at their DNA, comparing it to the DNA of close relatives, seeing the differences. And we know something from lab experiments, how quickly DNA changes, especially the DNA that doesn't code for specific proteins. So basically you can take two living species, you can compare their DNA, you can get some percentage difference. Knowing something about the rate that DNA changes, you can back calculate to predict when those two species would have last had a common ancestor. And When you do that, for primates is predicted that they would have been there in the late Cretaceous living alongside dinosaurs. We have just not found any definitive fossils yet. And frankly, maybe we never will. I mean, the first primates would have been tiny. These were things that probably you could have held in your hands. What are the odds of preserving something like that as a fossil? I hope somebody will find some one day, but maybe nobody ever will. And as paleontologists, we always have to make peace with that unknown
1: with what we don't find, (laughs) with what we don't find.
2: And we can predict what maybe we should be finding. And we can kind of, we can go out and look for those things. But the, the best way to fail as a paleontologist is go out and say, I want to find the oldest tyrannosaur. I want to find the bird ancestor. You know, if you set your goal so specifically, it's going to be very hard to find those fossils. So there's such an element of luck and chance and we just kind of throw it to the wind when we go out. We have some general idea. We wanna find fossils of a certain age. We wanna understand a, a certain environment or a certain moment in evolution. And then we have to leave it up to fate in terms of what the fossil record is gonna give us.
1: Well. I, I could go on with you for hours and I'm very disappointed that we don't we'll have do it. We'll do another
2: Ray- one when the next book is I'm I'm doing a bird book next. Oh, okay. It, 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 I still I still have a bit of time to write it. It will be out in a few okay. years, but please we will do a whole one on birds.
1: Definitely. And Ray, comes. you have a question you want to ask Steve. Hey
0: doctor, Steve, doctor, just 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 real quick, uh if if you could go back in time, what exciting epoch, what perfect period what exquisite era would you want to go back to? And what would you want to see?
2: Ah, oh, that's an, it's an impossible. Come on, why man. Did, why did you ask me that? Um, <laughs> you're asking me to play favorites. What? Okay. So, I mean, in my career so far as a paleontologist, I've jumped around quite a bit. And my, what I first studied as an undergraduate, when I worked with Paul Sereno, who I first trained with in Chicago, I studied theropod dinosaurs from the Cretaceous of Africa. And that was my first thing. Then when I did a master's degree, I went to Bristol in England and worked with Mike Benton and Graham Lloyd and Marcello Ruda. And we worked on Triassic animals, the origin of dinosaurs, the origin of crocodiles, all the weird things that were evolving on Pangea after the end Permian extinction. Then I did my PhD in New York with Mark Norell. And Mark, of course, is a great expert on feathered dinosaurs and the origin of birds. And my PhD was on the origin of birds, on the relationships of those dinosaurs closely related to birds. Then coming to Edinburgh and starting my own lab, I've continued to study these other things, but I've started to collect a lot of fossils in Scotland. Those fossils are Jurassic in age. Those are the Isle of Skye. On the Isle of Skye, yes, sir. And, uh, And then I've also started to work a lot on early mammal evolution, specifically what happened after the asteroid. In the Paleocene. So, really, we have Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, and Paleocene. You got it all, but
1: where? Where do you want to? We have
2: a time machine right now. And so, I promise you, I'm not punting on the question. I will not be the politician (laughs) and and just waver. I will say, if I could go back to any of those periods of time, it would have to be the Triassic period because you've had the worst mass extinction ever. Like maybe 95% of species die in this volcanic hellfire, global warming, total, complete global storm. (laughs) And the world is empty, essentially. Right.
1: And if you're a survivor- Well, except for my little pug friend, the Lystrosaurus is. That's right.
2: And so there are a few survivors. So imagine, put yourself in the little shoes, the little feet of those survivors. Like the world is essentially empty. The frontier is open, but it's a weird world, right? It's the supercontinent, It's Pangea. It's covered by deserts. It's being battered by monsoons. This is a hard place to live. And it was in that evolutionary crucible that the first dinosaurs, the first crocodiles, the first mammals, the first pterosaurs, the first modern types of lizards and amphibians, the first turtles, all of those things were evolving in the Triassic on Pangea after the extinction along with a whole host of weird, wacky, wonderful, messed up, mucked up, crazy, you can never predict it, you think you're hallucinating, you think you're looking at ray troll art from a speculative world, of this other stuff in the Triassic. And so for me that was just a time of incredible evolution and experimentation and the roots of dinosaurs and mammals are both in that time That's what I would love to go back to. No offense to the Jurassic, Cretaceous, or Paleoxene.
0: That's awesome. Is there a specific animal in that Triassic?
2: Not really. I would love to just go to those environments. I would love to see if I could what those very first dinosaurs and mammals were really like and how they were interacting with each other. Because, you know, you wouldn't know at the time if you were there that those two ancestors would go on to form these dynasties Of Earth history. I would love to see what the true origin stories were.
1: Wow, wow. Okay, I've got a question here, and this will be, this will wrap it up. Now I'm going to pretend like I'm not reading this. Um, Now this has always puzzled me. The first evidence for hominin stone tool use goes back approximately 2.6 million years, and yet in the last 10,000 years, Homo sapiens, us, we've progressed from hunter-gatherers to landing a human being on the moon. So Surely you must have postulated this, if the Mesozoic lasted approximately 185 million years or so, and dinosaurs for most of that time, to what extent do you personally think were the cognitive abilities of dinosaurs and what limitations kept them from tool use and becoming technological reptiles? This is an awesome
2: question. I do not have a firm answer. However, what I will say is we are working on this now. So what I think of two things. First of all, we're working on it now. We've just gotten recently this big research grant. It's led by a colleague of mine in Sweden, the guy named Matthias Oswald, who's a cognitive biologist. And Larry Whitmer's parted with me. Larry's a great expert on CT scanning and studying brains in fossil species. And then we have another colleague, a guy named Pavel Niemek in the Czech Republic, who's a
1: neurobiologist. Are you going to talk about
2: neuron density? Yes. So <laughs> we are trying to put the pieces together. The goal of this project—it's a six-year project—is to try to understand, first of all, the cognitive abilities of extinct species. What can we wow. possibly tell from the fossils? And then, secondly, what can we learn about the evolution of cognition on the line to today's species. How did modern day birds develop their cognitive abilities? Uh, So we're working on this. Uh, What I would say is birds are very, 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 very smart. Birds have big brains. A lot of birds do use tools. Look at a crow, look at a magpie, look at a raven. These are smart animals. They are much smarter probably than most mammals. So dinosaurs have evolved pretty high level behaviors and cognition, and they have evolved huge brains. And bird brains today have a lot more neurons than mammal brains. They have a greater density of neurons, and so that does raise the question of the cognitive abilities of raptor dinosaurs and tyrannosaurs and stuff. And it also raises the question: Why did birds or dinosaurs not get to the same point as mammals in producing something like us, with because absolutely? Because the amount of time they
1: exist, brains? but they they existed for hundreds of millions yeah. of years. And it took us 10,000 to become uh, the amazing technological species that we are.
2: And this is something, we're writing an article now about this, where we're posing the question more than anything, why haven't the dinosaur bird group, why haven't they reached the level of humans? Was it because just through the quirks of evolution, they never quite got their chance? Evolution's always contingent on the stuff that's happened before. Maybe in a different alternative reality, if you re ran that tape of life, as Stephen Jay Gould would say, and you went back to the Triassic and you press play again, maybe it would be the reptile, dinosaur, bird line that became highly intelligent like us. Or is there something about the biology, the anatomy, the brain architecture of the dinosaur bird group that has prevented them from going as far as we have. I don't have a good answer. My guess is it's probably more in the realm of evolutionary contingency that there probably would be an alternative history where you did have conscious T-Rexes and, you know, well, and that sort of thing, but I don't know.
1: Stephen Jay Gould did say that our technological and cognitive abilities is from look.
2: Yes, yes. And there, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be an anthropologist. There's a lot about human brain and cultural evolution. I don't know. Uh, when I wrote The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, I had to read a lot about this and learn a lot of it just to try to write a decent chapter on humans. I will not pretend <laughs> to be an expert on humans, but uh, I think there is a lot to that view that a lot about our own history is contingent. Just think about what would have happened if that asteroid never hit. It was a near miss. If it whizzed right on by the earth.
0: Well, one of the things I think is that I got to reading your dinosaur book is that we, uh, T Rex had brains and brawn, that it really was a highly intelligent animal. So, you know, you didn't have to just stand still. It knew where you were. You know, it figured yep. it out. It, it had a game plan. Yeah, that's point.
2: Yep, so. and true. And so, and I think this is a great topic to end on because we can now hopefully come back to this, you know, a few years down the line, talk about birds. I do the Burt book, talk about uh, consciousness and and, and behaviors and intelligence when we're we're more further along in our brain research. A lot to look forward to for our next chapter.
1: Well, Steve, that was amazing, and what a great topic to end on.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you.
0: I had a great time shooting the breeze with you. I want to have you back here on the show. It was really fun talking, man. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. All right. As we say in Edinburgh, great. (laughs) <laughs> okay. hey. Ray, that was way too short. I wanted to go for another hour.
0: I really did too. I had a lot more questions. I did a lot of research and we didn't even get to half this stuff, but we definitely have to have him back on the show, man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's so knowledgeable, you know, having written these books on dinosaurs and mammals, he's, you can pick his brain about almost any aspect you want on on Dinosauria and Mammal Paleontology.
0: Yeah, he's a bit of a generalist, but uh, still, you know, um, I have my areas that I'm into, you know, sharks and fishes and that kind of thing. And, and uh, uh, the uh, invertebrates. But, uh, yeah, no, he's really the man when it comes to dinosaurs. And actually, now he's into mammals big time. And yeah. uh, it was really fascinating.
1: He also went down the Tyrannosaurid rabbit hole.
0: Yeah, he's helped sort out the early tyrannosaurs and where Tyrannosaurus rex comes from, and and uh, you know he
1: worked on a thing
0: called the the Pinocchio rex. The Pinocchio rex, yes, There's a long snouted tyrannosaur. There were all these different kinds of tyrannosaurs. We could have another whole episode with us, yeah. Steve just about those, but you know the the feathered dinosaur thing, and really that I'm glad that I, I read that quote and just said you know I mean I still just kind of take birds for granted, you know, and then. Like, I know. They're everywhere. Like,
1: they everywhere. And you go, wait a minute. they are dinosaurs. Are, yeah, you are dinosaurs. The little sparrows on my bird feeder are dinosaurs. Well,
0: and That's why I had to bring up the seagulls, because in his books, he brings up the seagulls are acting just like velociraptors out there. It's like, yeah, OK, really interesting stuff. And uh, I, that was a good question there at the end. Would they have figured it out, you know, you know?
1: Well, I did a little bit of research prior to asking that question. I kind of know the answers. Uh, One thing we didn't get into was ecosystem restraints, meaning that parts of your ecosystem is not going to allow you to adapt in certain directions because you're happy there. You can reproduce there. There's no need to have to adapt and therefore grow your brain and, have more intelligent options for existing. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I I, I know what you're saying too, and I, I just the idea that you know getting into uh, how you can calculate brain size and you know basically thought patterns of past you know extinct creatures. Well,
1: what they've decided is the reason why a corvid, a crow magpie blue jay that has much higher intelligence has more intelligent let's say a common sparrow is because the density of the neurons in the brain it can still be a small brain but have more densely packed neurons and that's the difference between the smart birds and the not so smart birds and that goes across all of brains in the animal kingdom so humans we have not only do we have densely packed neurons, but we have the convolutions in our brain case, which allows us to have more surface area and therefore more places to have a higher thinking. Right. Physical. Well, not maybe not. <laughs> here you are rubbing your bald head.
0: Right? <laughs> maybe it's not very large brain in there, Dave. Calculating. But it's it's a fascination.
1: Uh, it's a fascinating topic. Go down into Google and uh, or chat GPT and ask, (laughs) why did dinosaurs evolve into a technological society? And there's some, uh, you
0: know, I guess what you're talking about is there are, you know, birds or any animal in their niche. They're as smart as they need to be. Right. Would that be? Yeah,
1: that's that's exactly. Yeah. Well, that's called. So the ecosystem, they are ecosystem is fine as they need to be, so there's no need to develop tools or fire.
0: But I'm always fascinated when I see uh, uh, the uh, robins in the yard or the thrushes in the yard, and then I see a ravens show up in the yard and just the calculations just the way that raven looks around or it looks at you and it sizes things up and then the robins are just they're just doing this.
1: but you know
0: they're as smart as they need to be right but the raven is like eh. But and really I hear them in the woods talking to each other and they seem to be kind of understanding you know what their community anyways it's intelligence
1: you hear that you hear that i'm playing uh right now i'm playing uh
0: there's the ravens and are they in the room here no they're in the woods mm. okay. <laughs> anyways uh i'm glad we do what we do here on paleo nerds dave yeah. and uh we you know to- what's
1: funny is you send these notes you send these fantastic bullet points to for research and then i get to spend an entire week being a an armchair paleontologist again, and I, and I go on YouTube, and I go on the internet. I went down the Lystrosaurus hole, so
0: uh, that had nothing to do with really this. Uh, you were just episode. off getting ready for uh, Steve Russotti.
1: This was a lot of fun, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned this, but we are listened to in over 107 countries around the world.
0: What's the most obscure country, Dave, for Obs- us? Obscure,
1: well, there's I think we're in some... In, in Africa, we are not
0: listened to in China. <laughs>
1: what? No, but no not, not one in China. But that could be because of their firewall. We don't know.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess we're around the world in all kinds of places and spale- <laughs> spreading the good word of paleo nerdism, right? <laughs> are you a paleo nerd, Ray? Hell yes, I am, Dave. And I'm a proud paleo nerd. Yeah, me too. All right, buddy. Saying goodbye
1: from Ojai, California. This is David Strassman, a paleo
0: nerd. Yes, and signing off from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska, by the sea here. Raymond Troll saying, see you later. Good talking paleo with you always, Dave.
1: Pleasure. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.